First Timothy 1, uh, verse 18. If you're visiting, my name is Darren. I am one of the pastors here. We're so grateful that you're here. There's so many great churches. God's doing so much great stuff in this community, so we're always glad uh, that someone decided to come be with us this morning. So, uh, Verse 18. Timothy, my child, Paul talking to his young protege, I'm instructing you in keeping with the prophecies made earlier about you so that by following them you may continue to fight the good fight with faith and a good conscience. By ignoring their consciences, some people have destroyed their faith like a wrecked ship. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Ouch. Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, we give ourselves to you this morning. Father, you're holy, you're awesome, you're complete. We acknowledge that this morning and invite you for these words to not just be an academic exercise, but a, but a spiritual experience for us this morning, that you will speak to us through your written word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1988, I was a 17-year-old with a mullet and a John Cougar Mellencamp cassette tape. (laughs) And I knew everything. And one of the things that I knew was that my mother was wrong about my girlfriend. (laughs) She was awesome. She just didn't know. Mom didn't know. But I had uh, this young lady lived in another town. If you grew up in a small town, one of the things you know is you're not supposed to date their women in the other town, right? Especially if you're rival football teams. So I was flagrantly violating that rule uh, in a town called Hebron. I lived in a town called Superior. Uh, so my mother, no, you can't, we don't want you, you guys shouldn't be dating. And I, I gave my mother the same, uh, really the same preference that anybody that had an opinion about my life that wasn't me, which is none. And so I, I, I you know, young love, and so I, I, we didn't have the internet. And back then, kids, we, if I was going to talk to Mary Yelm on the phone, I had to get you know, a little cable attached. I had to stay by the phone the whole time. But I wanted to see her, and my mom forbade it, and it was 45 minutes away, and I had just gotten a driver's license. So I hatched a plan, and this plan was brilliant. I was going to tell my mo- I told my mother that I was going to spend the night at Marcus Gonzalez's house, my buddy Marcus. And Marcus said he's going to spend the night at my house, right? Flawless. What could possibly go wrong? And my mother, who could, she smelled a rat, so she's like, wow, I don't think you're telling me the truth, I, you know. And I don't know why she didn't just threaten to call Marcus's mom, but instead she said, well, I think you're going, you better not be lying to me. Let your conscience be your guide. Right? As the door shut on my way out the door, the last words I heard as the door was slamming is, if you go to Hebrew and it's against my... And then the door shut. Uh, Will is what she was saying. But um, here's the thing. I got in my car. I aimed it towards Hebron, Nebraska and drove it straight there and I felt exactly none guilt. I let my conscience be my guide. That's what she said to do. Fast forward about five hours as I'm walking around the streets of the small town. The football game is over. And a couple of uh, 
young men who were much larger, much more redneck, if you can imagine that, than me, and tougher than me, uh, did not like that we were dating their women. And so, uh, you know, have you ever heard the, if, if you're being attacked by a bear, you just have to be faster than the slowest guy? <laughs> so it turns out, well, there was three of us, and you know, the age of chivalry wasn't dead, so he told me, run, 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 run. And um, so then it's just me and Marcus, who was a track star. <laughs> Nicknamed Speedy Gonzalez. who flat out just smoked me, like, <laughs> it's like, so I threw, a, uh, they, they were, you know, whatever, so I'm thinking, well, I'll just, I'll go, I'll just go at them, you know, I'll, that was a terrible idea, so I, I threw a punch, and you know, in the movie, that always works, like the karate kid, Ralph Macchio, like, you know, that's not how that works in real life, I think I hit him on the shoulder, <laughs> which is not really a kill zone, you know? <laughs> Last thing I remember <laughs> was being literally kicked in the head. These dudes were hammered, like drunk. And then I remember waking up, looking up, and like all I could think was, if you go to Hebrew, it's against my will. Like in my... <laughs> my eye is swelling shut. I'm driving the 45-mile home drive of shame to see my uh, mom and to have to tell her, well, obviously, uh, Marcus's mom didn't do this to me, so, you know... <laughs> Um, but I let my conscience be my guide, which is some advice you might have heard in our culture. You might have heard it from, remember Pinocchio? The greatest advice, let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> and Seinfeld, Kramer, at one point looks to George and says, you gotta listen to the little man. What's the little man telling you? Listen to the little man. Now, doesn't that sound like what Paul is saying here about your conscience? If you ignore your conscience, you'll shipwreck your faith. But yet I followed my conscience, got the tar beat out of me, and grounded. Maybe we, maybe we need to understand what the conscience actually is. I'll bet if I were to ask everybody in this room, you would say, oh yeah, I know what the conscience is. And then you'd be like, uh, I mean, you know, it's that thing, you know, that you know, I felt bad about that thing, or I didn't feel bad. The Bible talks about the conscience 30 times in the New Testament. It's 20 times in the Paul letters, three times in 1 Peter, twice in Hebrews, twice in Acts. I think I'm missing one. Is that 30? But how many sermons have you heard on the conscience? If you've been at Conduit, you've heard none on the conscience in the last eight years. Maybe that's what, when Paul says, if you ignore your conscience, you could shipwreck your faith. Maybe in our lives, this is the danger we face by having literally ignored one of the tools that God wired into us at birth to help navigate through this life. And I, as I read this, Paul says, ignoring your conscience, they shipwreck their faith. So let's start with the definition, a biblical definition of what the conscience is. We could go a lot deeper, we could go to the Greek, but bottom line is this, the simple definition is this. It is your consciousness about what you think is right or wrong at any given point. Your consciousness about what you believe is right or wrong at any given point in time. The problem with following your conscience is that at some points in time, 
It's not the right thing to follow. And at other points, it is the right thing to follow. What I believe and what we're going to talk about this morning is the, the consequences of ignoring our conscience. But when I say conscience, it's a conscience that is calibrated to the word of God. See, at the youngest age, your conscience is pure. If you don't believe me, there's actually, you can find it on the internet. You don't have to have this necessarily, this conversation with your own children. But a conversation with a young child about abortion, for instance, they are baffled by it. Because their conscience tells them that's wrong. Romans 1 talks about that, that those that you would be without excuse because there are things that are literally wired into you at birth that you know is right and wrong. Now, there is also divine conscience revelation, which comes from the Bible, but that the core of it, now the challenge is, is that over time, the more, the reason I put, got my Oldsmobile piece of junk car, aimed it at Hebron and felt zero guilt was because it wasn't the first time. I snuck out when I was a kid all the time. I didn't feel any, no consequences of that. And so by the time I did it that night, I had not ignored how I felt. I didn't feel at all. What I had ignored was calibrating my conscience to the word of God. And by doing so, Paul lays out in this, there's three things, that it wrecks your witness, that it wrecks your faith, and that it wrecks your life. He uses the language of, this nautical language of, uh, of shipwrecking. And it wrecks your witness. He, he says to Timothy that, look, by, if you've got faith in a good conscience, I think it's verse 18, I'm instructing you in keeping with the prophecies made about you so that by following them, you may continue to fight the good fight with faith and a good conscience. Why is the good conscience a part of that? Romans 2, he would say this to not, so Romans 1 was speaking to unbelievers. Romans 2, he flips the script and starts talking to us. And in verse 21, he, so you can write it down and go later. He says, if you teach those uh, you who teach others, you do not teach yourself. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And if you've seen it, we, we are pretty good. If you've been on the internet lately, one guy falls with a, with a moral failing, especially a pastor, and the internet is apoplectic. The pitchforks and the shovels and the torches are with a keyboard and a mouse. But what's happening is because of that, and the reason why he talks about when Timothy, don't ignore your conscience, because if you do this and you blow it, then the name of God will be blasphemed amongst the unbelievers. By ignoring your conscience, you wreck your witness Further to that, Paul would actually then say in chapter four, he talks about your conscience being seared. When I was young and I, uh, there wasn't a boom box that I didn't take apart and put back together. I was actually watching my daughter Ashley who fixed an iPhone the other night with her little tools and the, these screws are so tiny that even with my readers on, I'm like, that's, there's nothing there. Like that's, you're just screwing air in. I was leaning over trying to put a battery in an iPhone, and I just thought, you know, you just put it out and pop it in. Oh, no, 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 no. Apple's way smarter than that. And Ashley kind of leans in. Do you want me to do that for you, Dad? I mean, yeah, I guess, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> 
But when I was a kid, there wasn't, I took everything apart, put it back together, solder iron, and there was a, some late night I just put together my boom box for the 30th time, and I reached to push play, probably on a Petra tape, I don't know, and, <laughs> and I smelled something. And then I felt something. What I smelled was my arm laying on the soldering iron, which had been on for a while. That left a mark. And you can't really see it now. It's been 30 years ago. But what happened for the longest time was I had this huge scar there that when you touched it, it felt different than when you touched the other skin. It had been seared. It numbed the feeling. That's what he's saying. And he's saying to those who teach who have seared your conscience. Look what he says happens to those who have seared their consciences. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. He goes on. This is chapter 4, verse 3 of First Timothy. Abstain from marriage. They forbid them to marry. One of the things that happens, I think this, is, this talks about the last days, but when you begin to sear your conscience from the earliest age, which we started doing in the 60s and the 70s, the sexual revolution, and then on TV, well, it's okay as long as there's no nudity, and then it's, a, literally our consciences became seared. There was this long, we talk about the slippery slope, it's not a slippery slope, it's a seared conscience. And so what happened is now it's not just about one man, one woman, it's about marriage at all. In our culture, the New York Times released an article about this uh, just a couple of years ago and talked about that in our culture, in modern culture, that marriage is on the down, it's on the decline, dramatically dropping in Western culture. And, in, and obviously the New York Times, not exactly known as a bastion of conservative think, says that the shift, talking about the consequences of the lack of marriage in our culture, no, it's not even, they're not even making the argument one man, one woman. They're saying no marriage at all. The shift is affecting children's lives. Researchers have consistently found that children born outside marriage face elevated risks of falling into poverty, failing in school, or suffering emotional and behavioral problems. There's an elevated risk, and I'm not talking about if... Look, if you, if you made a, a, a mistake and you, you kept your baby as a single mom, I want you to know that is a celebrated moment because you've taken this life and said, I'm going to carry it anyway. But that's not what this is talking about. This is saying, well, I didn't make a mistake. This is saying, I don't want marriage at all. So th now we're... But here's this lovely article in the salon.com, which is, is definitely known as not a bastion of conservative think... This recent article from Salon was saying, look, hey, the end of capitalism, the end of marriage, the end of God, finally, exclamation point. This was a couple years after the New York Times piece. Referring to the New York Times piece, this, the writer makes this case that uh, there might be consequences. It might not be good for marriage, for the children, but maybe we're overthinking it, is what they say. In fact, they point to, uh, the, the, we call this scandamania, uh, not Scandinavia. It's the idea that in Norway that everything is so awesome. And that's what this writer says is that, well, look at Norway. Look how awesome they are. By the end of marriage, the writer says, but the end of marriage might also be a sign of something great. Look to Scandinavian countries, which rank amongst the highest educated in the world and goes on to talk about how awesome Scandinavia is. And by the way, if you, would, if you want to read more on it, I'll post these links later. But Again, Washington Post. I'm bringing stuff that isn't in like conservative stuff because I want you to see this, uh, this article from the Washington Post. The, the, the title says it all. White Denmark isn't the utopian fantasy that uh, it is being described to everybody. 
because there are challenges that are way deeper than that. My po- Here's my point of all of this. Here's why this wrecks our witness. By us, as a, as a culture, if, if our Christianity, we calibrate our conscience by our culture. Here's the problem. This week, our president said some somewhat distasteful things may or may not have said. We don't know. And the internet went crazy about it. And if he said it, this should be condemned. Absolutely. On the other hand, I've been to these countries. I've had conversations, and many of you have as well. And for years, what they are offended by is not whether or not our president said that. They're looking to us and our stance on morality and saying, what is wrong with you people? When they watch the news, you can go into any, almost any airport in the world. You know, Don, you've traveled a lot. And you see CNN playing in the background. And these talk about this, this new cultural thing where you see the redefinition of marriage, you see the redefinition of gender, and they're looking at that going, have you guys lost your ever-loving minds? How did that, Lafleur goes, how did that even come into your mind? Like, they don't understand because their conscience has forbidden it from them. And my point is, we can talk about the culture all day long, and we can talk about the government all day long, but as a church, whether it's China, whether it's North Africa, East Africa, Our witness is wrecked when we allow our culture to calibrate our conscience instead of the word of God. That's what they're offended by, and that's what we lose our credibility. So I want to suggest to you that absolutely we should be offended if, if our leaders say something detrimental like that. But what's way more offensive to them is if us as a church, look, let Caesar render under Caesar what is Caesar. But us as a church, that's why Paul says specifically to Timothy, don't let your conscience become seared. Because by doing so, you're going to teach things. You're going to end up forbidding marriage. And we have watched it unfold in our culture over the last 40 years, this slow, gradual searing of, of our conscience. We can't allow that because it wrecks our witness. It doesn't just wreck your witness. It also wrecks your faith. Verse 19, by ignoring their conscience, some people have destroyed their faith like a wrecked ship. Again, not ignoring how your conscience feels in that moment. Before you listen to it, you better pay attention to it. And pay attention to it just like in the gym. Like, if I'm not working out right now, then in the moment I need the strength, it's kind of too late, right? So by paying attention to my conscience before I ever get there is what this is suggesting. And Paul uses this nautical language because this was a dude that had been shipwrecked. (laughs) How much does that stink? And so Paul says they've shipwrecked their faith. And in Acts 27, you can go there later. It's a fascinating story where Paul was getting his all-expense-paid trip to Rome. He, from the earliest of his ministry days, he wanted to go to Rome. And so God said, I'll get you there in a, on a prison ship with a centurion and your hands chained. And so here's Paul on this boat. And it says that they were going to these islands and it was getting late and it was winter. And they'd come to Crete. And they're kind of just, you just kind of, if you look at it on a map, they're kind of going from port to port along the coast. But they get to Crete and he says very specifically in Acts chapter 27, it is beyond, uh, it's past the day of atonement, which was the end of September, which means it's fall, which means it's winter, which means that common sense says you don't sail in the winter. We need to port here. And so the centurion asks the captain, who it specifically says owned the boat, which means this dude was a veteran. He knew this ocean. And the veteran says, nah, 
It's probably going to be okay. By the way, if you read, do research on this stuff, you'll see that most, if it's an operator error when it comes to an airplane or to a ship, or it is most times a veteran, not a rookie. Because the veteran kind of begins to listen, you know, stop listening to the little man. The veteran begins to recalibrate the little man that says, oh, we've done this before and it was fine. Oh, we've done this and it worked just fine. And Paul says to him, this is what common sense says. The captain says, no. So they listen to the captain and they end up, it says they go out to sea and they're just being blown around here to there. And Paul would say in Ephesians chapter two, talking about us not being those blown around on every wind of doctrine. He sailed, he left what he knew, and now the wind's just blowing him here and blowing him there, which is why when you watch sometimes in a decline of a culture or the decline in a person, you see them here or you see them there. And ultimately, they should have stayed where they were. But it says that they didn't think the port was sustainable. There's a word that they used there that actually didn't mean, it just meant they just didn't want to be there because it wasn't any fun. There's this other one that looks a whole lot more fun. We hate, it'd be like we could winter in Corpus Christi or Galveston, or we could head over to, to Destin or Tampa, right? God bless the coast of Texas or Louisiana, but we'd rather go to you know, Tampa. And that is sort of the idea they're saying is this, this place isn't no fun. We want to go someplace more fun. Ignored their conscience, ignored common sense, and went in the ship. It talks about it almost sinks. They're holding it together at ropes. And what I love is this is that Paul says, don't, whatever you do, don't leave this ship. And I'm saying to you this morning, if you've let your conscience become seared and you've let every wind of doctrine pulling you this way and that way, it's wrecking your faith. You're beginning to ask, well, what about this or what about that? Don't, he says, don't abandon your ship or you'll die. He held it together with rope. <laughs> There's lots of questions here, but don't leave your faith. Don't leave the boat. And over the years, I've been at this a while. Whenever I've seen this is anecdotal evidence, but I think it will resonate with you. When I've seen someone who has begun to rewrite scripture to accommodate their life, it's because they have made decisions earlier that have begun to shipwreck their faith, and so they need to rewrite it to accommodate. It's never the other way around. They begin to abandon their faith and then begin to say, well, maybe I could do this, or maybe I could do, you know, maybe just a one-night stand with this guy. It won't be, or just, she's, you know, she would, you know. We begin to stretch it, not, you know what I mean? It wasn't like I, I did, got rid of my faith and then started it. It's the other way around. I started pushing the boundaries, and then the faith shipwrecked. There's a very specific order in that. And so the question then, it can wreck your faith. It can wreck your witness. It wrecks your life as well. And the question is, when he says this, in verse 20, I've handed him over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What in the world is he talking about? I mean, is it you almost feel like a prisoner exchange here? Like I'm handcuffing him and handing him over to Satan? Or is it? I think, it's, I think it's deeper than that, and I think it's far more practical than that. If you've been around addiction recovery at all, you know that at some point, what is the first, the 12 steps, right? Is to admit that you're powerless over this addiction. And you... <laughs> You could be taught a few ways, by the way. You could be taught by the experience. You could be taught by the Holy Spirit. You can be taught by your grandma, whatever. Taught by a Bible teacher. What you don't want to be is taught by Satan, okay? Because that's what he's saying. That's your last step, is being taught by Satan. And I think that what he's suggesting here is that it was their own consequences. It's Jeremiah 2.19. He says that it was their own backsliding that punished them. Their own, and it, that's just another way of saying that, look, these are the consequences of your decision. And at some point, I'm going to have to put a boundary in place in our life 
that says, I can't let you hurt me anymore or hurt those around you. Which is why you've seen the intervention. It makes for an awful, gut-wrenching TV show. But that happens in some people's life because what those people are doing is not out of anger, but out of love saying, I am officially cutting you off unless you get help because we can't allow you to continue to steal from grandma. We can't allow you to continue to, we're enabling you. We're saying, and that's what, it, when he's saying this, I think that's the idea. He says it later in First or Second Corinthians, turning over someone to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that their soul might be saved. Not that they're even gonna die, just that you have literally got to the bottom because your life is a mess. You've been cut off from everything. That is the last step in a boundary. And by the way, if you're in a situation like that, I heavily recommend you read a book called uh, Necessary Endings by Dr. Henry Cloud. Fascinating, and it is extremely helpful to understand when you need to cut it loose on somebody and put some boundaries in place. And what Paul is ultimately saying here is, I had to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh because these decisions that these teachers were making, Second Timothy, or 1 Timothy 4, they're harming other people now. You're hurting others. And I had to hand them over to him, and Satan will teach them not to blaspheme. So the question for me, all these things that can happen if we ignore our conscience. So what are we supposed to do with it? The, the Bible talks about a strong conscience and a weak conscience. By the way, the most times a weak, well, not most times, all the time, in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, when it talks about a weak conscience, the weak conscience is somebody who's actually pretty religious. Somebody, you, might, you may be surprised to hear this, but there was a day in my life where I wouldn't have stood on a stage without a tie on, right? I don't even own a tie now. Actually, I do. For weddings and funerals and litigation. Those are the three <laughs> purposes of a tie now. Um, I was at a Bible school that you had to have your hair cut above your ears with a picture of Jesus on the wall with long hair and no sense of irony. Kyle, were you, did they still have short hair rule when you were there? Yes. yes. And tie. And tie. And skirt. skirt. I, I, I rigged the system when I realized you just put a sweater on and pull it up high enough. It looks like a tie's on. <laughs> anyway, my point, that's a, weak, that's a weak conscience. That's religion. Saying that I, because I've calibrated my conscience not to the word, but to these religious ideas. And Paul talks about uh, one of the examples in scriptures in Acts chapter 8 with, when he told Satan to get behind him because of bacon. Right? Keto? He says, Peter had calibrated his conscience to religion and not to the word. And Peter did something that was interesting, and I suggest you do the same. He didn't calibrate his conscience by starting to do stuff that went against it. That's what Paul would refer to as sinning against your conscience. And he tells us who have a stronger conscience to not judge those who have a weaker conscience. To not, if, if you, if you, this religious holiday, if you've, you know, sometimes when we go overseas, it's hard, you know, in uh, certain countries where they have a culture where you're wearing a tie, like I part, me, part of me wants to just say, no, you're free, you're free. But the other part says, don't make them sin against their conscience. Instead, let them calibrate to the word and then let the word set them free. On the other hand, for those of us whose consciences have been seared, calibrating it, is you matching up with, like you're dialing in. You know, if you guys like you got the running app every once in a while, you got to calibrate it. You know what I'm talking about? you got to move it around, get it dialed in a little bit to the GPS. Because over time, this is a constant journey of calibration. I'll be out there with my app going, I thought I just did this. 
I got to do it again because it, it lost its calibration. A constant journey of us calibrating to the word of God. In John chapter 8, there was a woman who was caught in adultery. You might remember this story. And it says that the religious people, they were people with a weak conscience, brought her to Jesus and said, you need to stone her and kill her. They thought they were going to trick him. And Jesus did what Jesus does so well. A little bit of right back at you. It says they continued asking him in verse 7. He raised up and said to them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And again, it says, verse 8, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. They came in there with their conscience like, uh, calibrated to their culture that said this woman should be beaten down. And what I love, it says that Jesus bent over and wrote and they heard it. The word of God is alive and it's active. He wrote, I don't, we don't know what he wrote. There's lots of ideas, but what we do know is he wrote the word of God. They heard it, listened to their, their conscience, calibrated to his word and they walked away one by one. It, one idea was that what he was doing was he wrote each of their names and the sin that they had done. Because it says from the oldest and to the youngest, one by one. Be like, oh, Darren, oh, you're right, you got me. We don't know that. What we do know is it was the word of God and that they calibrated their lives to it. Hebrews 10.22 talks about your conscience being cleansed by the blood of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it is our desperate need to calibrate our conscience to him. And we only know what he said by his word, by his written and his revealed word to us. Because let me tell you what, if we're going to calibrate it by our culture, which one? We choose the American culture? Any idea how arrogant that sounds to China? That we got this right? In the, I was in the Dominican Republic just a couple of years ago, and we were there doing a, 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 a sermon, a, a series of events around helping Christian leaders fight sex trafficking in the Dominican Republic. Many people don't know that it is one of the highest rates of sex trafficking in the Western Hemisphere. It's a, a very expensive uh, resorts that are there and wealthy men are there. And the country is welcoming the church to do it because just a couple of years ago, there was a representatives of our government, our ambassador to the Dominican Republic, who said to them, we will help you finance uh, this to fight against sex trafficking if you will change your definition of marriage. And if not, we're withholding our money. The media was silent. You didn't even know that happened, did you? They were saying, we want you, Dominican, to calibrate to our culture. And you know what the Dominican said? Then we'll do it ourselves. And the church is down there right now fighting against it and saving countless young women which culture do you calibrate to if you're going to choose a culture? Do you choose Nigeria? Do you choose Uganda? Uganda says in their, their cultures that you need to have a lot of cows. That's your status there. <laughs> I guess that's West Texas too. The more I think about it. <laughs> 
Who do we calibrate? We have one that we can calibrate to. It is Jesus who cleansed by his blood, cleanses our conscience. And by the way, just two verses later, talks about, hey, and coming together, inspire one another to do awesome things. Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together because you have a clean conscience and a good conscience. Here's what I want you to do. In 2018, I don't want us to anymore look to our culture to calibrate our conscience. You young mamas, this generation, I have so much empathy because you are blasted with Instagram, with Pinterest, with opinions about how to raise those babies. You can almost feel the mommy blogs yelling at you sometimes. That if you don't do this, then you're just a terrible mom. And, you're, and what happens is now your, your conscience begins to be calibrated against the culture, and so you feel this guilt and shame. It was never... I want you to be able to calibrate your, your conscience to the Word of God. And here's how one way that you can do that, starting at the beginning of February, right? Tom and Lori Carr, who are here, they, they just sewed Tom's neck back together are going to lead a, a, a series of classes and get-togethers for parents of young children. And they just love Jesus so much, and the Holy Spirit just oozes out of Lori whenever he's here. They're going to spend time helping you to calibrate your conscience to the Word of God as it relates to being a parent. In finances... The culture says spend, spend, spend. There are parents in this room, you're feeling the pressure right now that if my kid doesn't go to college, that the world is over. And you're feeling the pressure of maybe, well, we'll just get a bunch of student loans and that pressure so that they can spend $80,000 for a job that pays 30. And the culture's saying, do this, but as parents, what if we calculated and, I mean, calibrated our conscience to God's word? Financial Peace University, Travis and Sarah Alexander, who themselves have eliminated tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt from their young lives are going to lead that class for us. And one of the greatest gifts of Financial Peace University is it actually isn't just that it gets somebody out of debt, it puts a husband and a wife on the same page as it relates to finances. Because your conscience might say this about money and my conscience might say that about money. What does God's word say? Let's get on the same page together. That starts at the end of January on Wednesday nights. And then Man, and marriages in our culture right now are being absolutely massacred because of seared consciences and husbands making bad decisions. Uh, husbands and wives bringing pornography into the marriage because the culture says it's okay and there's no crime, there's no harm, there's no foul in that. Seared consciences and it's wrecking their lives and wrecking their marriages. I've sat across the table from too many of them. Starting in February 9th and 10th, Joe Beam, who is the Batman of broken marriage, is going to lead a marriage conference that weekend. This is not just if your marriage is broken, by the way, February 9th and 10th. Sometimes you've got to take the transmission in, just get her tuned up a little bit, get the engine tweaked. This isn't the content he would do at a marriage 911 weekend. By the way, if you need that, let us know. These mar- he's doing it right now. There's like 25 couples right now in a undisclosed location, (laughs) that are fighting for their marriages together. Joe Beam, Dr. Joe Beam, the Batman of broken marriage. He's going to do, literally, this is is such a blessing for us. He's part of our church family. He's just giving us this. To go through a normal weekend with Joe is $1,500 a couple. But it's like getting three years of counseling in three days. Like he, he's going to pour into our marriages February 9th and 10th. Let's spend 2018 calibrating our 
consciences, in our marriage, in our finances, in our parenting, to what God's word says and away from the culture. Mo's going to tell us how. Yes. So last week, we, we talked a little bit about this, these clipboards that are around the room. One here, one on, by Darren, two in the back on each side. And uh, we are super excited and super proud of our, our church family. We had uh, almost 50 couples register for the marriage weekend, which is unbelievable. And we have plenty of room for more. So if you put your email address in any of these three columns, we have the parenting class, Coming up, Joe, go ahead and put the parenting class information up there. It starts at the end of January, the end of this month. It'll be during the second service, and it'll run eight to nine weeks through the 25th. That will be in, uh, in the back in, in our basement area for parents, and it's mostly for young kids. We'll have our parenting class, and we have FPU, Financial Peace University, which will meet on Wednesdays, and that'll be in this room, most likely. And uh, you can, and it'll be the 31st to the 28th. And I'll send you information about that as well. And then lastly, like we talked about, the Marriage Helper Weekend, which is February 9th and 10th, almost Valentine's uh, time right there. Um, it's a no-cost workshop, and that'll be Friday evening, all day Saturday. And then obviously we'll gather again together Sunday. But if you are interested, put your email address in any of these three classes, and I will email you more information and registration link about that this week. Thank you, Mo. Let this be a year of calibration for us, for our consciences. Let's reclaim our consciences. This table looks a little better this week, doesn't it? Good job, Steve Adams. The picture of Jesus as a carpenter taking something that looks dead and useless and making it into something alive and useful. I have loved watching the pictures of you guys at your dinner tables, reclaiming your tables and reclaiming your families around that. Continue to do that. Next week, it'll be a little more completed. And by the end of the month, we're going to give this bad boy away. So uh, come with a truck that day, everybody. <laughs> we'll probably figure out how to get it to you. Would you stand and let's pray. By the way, Vanna will be right here selling these t-shirts. Jesus, we give ourselves to you today. Lord, I, I'm just for myself, I want to begin to even more calibrate. Find, would you reveal to me those areas where my conscience is just a little off and dial it in. Dial it to your word. And as we read your written word, we will hear you and our consciences will be a vital part of who we are. We reclaim that in your name. Amen.